Hey, before we get started, I want to remind you that Truce is listener-supported. If you want to be a part of this one-of-a-kind show that asks big questions in an approachable way, become a patron. For just $5 a month, you can help me tell big stories like this upcoming season on the history of fundamentalism. And you'll get access to bonus materials. That's all at patreon.com slash trucepodcast. That's patreon.com slash trucepodcast. This episode is part of a long series about the rise of Christian fundamentalism in the United States through the life of William Jennings Bryan and the Scopes Monkey Trial. It can't stand on its own, but it makes a lot more sense in its context. So maybe go back to the beginning of Season 5 and start there. It's the middle of the night. John's sister wakes him from his sleep. He's just six years old. What's that smell? She goes out into the hallway. What does she see? Fire! She runs around getting everyone up. It's 1709, no smoke detectors. And she's just one of a huge family, so there are lots of people, adults, teenagers, and children. Everyone has to get out now. In the melee, John is left on the second story. This is what he wrote in his autobiography, speaking of his father. Finding it impossible to get near him, he gave him up for lost. And kneeling down, he commended his soul to God and left him, as he thought, perishing in the flames. Thinking quickly, one man got on another's shoulders and reached for the boy. Come on, buddy, I gotcha, and snatched him from the room just moments before the roof collapsed. Thus, by the infinite mercy of Almighty God, our lives were all preserved by little less than a miracle, for there passed but a few minutes between the first alarm of fire and the falling of the house. John later attended Oxford. There, a group of his friends determined that they were going to take this Christianity thing seriously. They were nothing if not organized, and drew up a plan. Study the Bible, pray, take communion, live a holy life. Study the Bible, pray, take communion, live a holy life. Also in this group, George Whitfield, the evangelist we discussed in the first episode of season five. One Bible study, two movers and shakers in evangelicalism. Anyhow, this style of living the Christian life got them called some nasty names. You're a Bible moth. Look at those Methodists. They've got a little reforming club. (laughs) They took one of the derogatory names that was hurled at them and went with it. Methodists. John Wesley, the boy from the burning house, an evangelist, hymn writer, was one of the founders of Methodism. Obviously, a really important guy. All of that is well and good, But for our purposes today, we're going to focus on a question that haunted Wesley, one that shaped modern evangelicals and fundamentalism. It seems really simple, and I'm going to try to paraphrase it here, but it has big consequences. Now that I am a Christian, do I still sin? You're listening to the show that uses journalistic tools to look inside the Christian church. We press pause on the culture wars in order to explore how we got here and how we can do better. I'm Chris Starin, and this is Truce.
God is a genius storyteller, and the evidence of this is threaded throughout Scripture. In Christianity Today's new show, Holy Curiosity, with me, Kat Armstrong, we explore storied connections threaded throughout Scripture from the Old Testament to the New. Our first miniseries, Connecting Dinah and the Woman at the Well, welcomes experts like Drs. Tim Mackey and Diane Landberg to give us insight and context into the physical location and meaning of these two stories. These stories will spark holy curiosity in your own faith, because once you see these connections, you can't unsee them. God wastes no person, place, or thing. Listen and subscribe to Holy Curiosity with Kat Armstrong on your favorite podcast platform. This, it turns out, is a giant puzzler. Is it possible for a Christian to no longer sin? Wesley said yes, and his notion became known as holiness. One of those buzzwords that means a lot of different things in the Christian world. Wesley didn't just pull this doctrine out of the air. He tied it to Scripture. Jesus says in Matthew 5.48, You therefore must be perfect, as your heavenly Father is perfect. Wesley was convinced that since that command was made, it must be possible for Christians to live without sin. To be honest, I got pretty twisted up in all this, because there are so many offshoots of this idea. So many. So I talked with Chris Evans. He's a professor of history of Christianity and Methodist studies at Boston University and the author of Do Everything, a biography of suffragette Francis Willard. He was also my guest on the episode titled The Liberals. Now, John Wesley as a theologian really emphasized the idea that sanctification was a process, that through study through prayer, through worship, and through service, you would in some way become more attuned and the grace of God would become more a part of your being. Again, once you are a Christian, Wesley believed there is this process, sanctification, one of those crazy big words you find in Christianity. Essentially, you're saved. And then through this process, you are transformed, renewed. Maybe you aren't so taken with sin. Now this is a big deal because it sets up this goal for Christians to continue their sanctification, try to live holier lives. It's a process. Okay, that doesn't sound so difficult, but because ideas rarely stay in their original form, things got more complex. Now, after Wesley dies, and you see this particularly among certain groups in the United States, the the belief in sanctification was really strong, but the emphasis turns more to the idea of sanctification as an event. Not a process. Not something that takes time. Instead, one minute you're doing your thing, la-di-da-di-da, folding my laundry, and then wham! An encounter with the Holy Spirit. And now, forget the process. I am now perfect, or depending on your bent, at least capable of acting in a sinless way. This may sound distant, 
So let's bring it home with kind of an extreme version of this. I had a roommate about 10 years ago who, of all things, grappled with me on holiness. Me and another roommate were in the kitchen doing dishes. We're like, shouldn't the third guy be in here helping us? Most of the dishes were his. We tried to get him to help us, and he wouldn't, because he was reading his Bible. Okay, fair enough, but this continued. Night after night, week after week, we did his dishes while he read his Bible in the living room. When I talked to him about this pattern, he didn't see anything wrong with it. Why? Because, get ready for this, he was saved. Once he was saved, he couldn't sin anymore. Therefore, ignoring his household chores wasn't wrong. This is an extreme example, but you see the tangle this gets us in. Part of our problem as humans is that we love to take things to their logical extremes. My roommate believed that since he had received the Holy Spirit, he was instantly sanctified, then his actions must not be sin. It's funny when it comes to something as trivial as dishes, but it can have real consequences. Say if you're a fundamentalist and you see someone struggling with sin, maybe you think it's a sign that that person isn't saved at all. Or you might overlook your own shortcomings because, well, you're saved. See how this gets weird really fast. And you guys, go easy with me on this episode. These ideas are all over the place. We're going to have to keep things pretty generalized here. The number of traditions, and a lot of these were offshoots of, of Methodism, were very concerned about the fact that they, they believed churches were becoming too worldly and that the doctrine of sanctification was becoming sort of an optional buy-in for people. People were worried that the process of sanctification let folks off the hook, let them treat sin kind of loosey-goosey. I'm not a sinner. I'm in the process of being sanctified. In the 1830s, 1840s, and 1850s, you have evangelicals, and a good example is Charles Finney. We talked about him in the first episode. He was an Arminian associated with the Second Great Awakening, really important in the Northeastern United States. Who, who taught the idea that sanctification and this, this idea of entire sanctification was the end that the Christian should seek for. This may sound like a silly little divergence, theological grapplings, but this does, in an interesting way, tie into fundamentalism. Because fundamentalism was incubated in this era, when people were trying to figure out, what does it mean to be holy? Can I really live like Jesus did? Is it possible to go a day, an hour, or a minute without sin? If I sinned, does it mean that I really was never saved? Or am I just not that far in my sanctification process? How do I live a holy life? And what are the spiritual mechanics behind the scenes that make that happen? It also took an unlikely turn. Wesley's holiness was really hard to contain in its original form. His idea of a second blessing, the start of this process, morphed when it went beyond him. 
to the birthplace of Pentecostalism by a woman named Phoebe Palmer. Palmer's contribution to Christianity is kind of gigantic for someone most of us don't know. She was a Methodist, like Wesley, and she was super busy. She went out of her way to help the poor of New York, and she organized prayer meetings for women that grew into a movement. By 1836, Palmer had lost three young children. She felt that these tragedies happened due to a lack of holiness. In her mind, her children had become her idol, and God said not to have any gods before him. So she prayed and prayed. And in 1837, she felt she'd experienced a miracle. Last evening between the hours of eight and nine, my heart was emptied of self and cleansed of all idols, from all filthiness of the flesh and spirit, and I realized that I dwelt in God and felt that he had become the portion of my soul. My all in all. The result of which was present purification. When you are converted, wham! In that moment, you metaphorically place everything on the altar. Your belongings, your fears, your sins, your family. And in doing so, you receive a second blessing. Sort of a different one from what Wesley advocated. By the end of the 1800s, this blessing of Palmer's became known as Baptism of the Holy Ghost. A few years later, it would transition to focus on healings, tongues, and miracles, to more of what we know today. We won't spend a lot of time on Pentecostalism this season. The only reason I bring it up is that we tend to see doctrine and history as straight lines. A leads to B that leads to C. That is not how history or doctrines work. They meander. They take interesting turns. Wesley's notion of holiness, birthed from a small group, spread through different denominations and influenced Pentecostalism, as well as Christians who are Arminian, Calvinist, Presbyterian, CMA, Church of God, the Salvation Army, and on and on and on. And of course, Methodism. Folks who may not agree on much, but all had some form of holiness. Different groups made it their own. So, what does this have to do with fundamentalism? One of the offshoots or evolutions of this idea was popular among D.L. Moody and his lieutenants, the people we talked about in the last two episodes. That offshoot is called Keswick Holiness. Now, don't get bogged down. This is just another form that this doctrine takes, named after a town in England where it began. Essentially, Keswick Holiness divides Christians into two camps, the carnal Christian and the spiritual Christian. You hear this from time to time when people tell you about how they became a Christian. It often starts with, I got saved when I was a kid. Meaning they walked down an aisle, prayed a prayer, something like that. They had an experience with God, but then... I accepted Christ as my Lord a few years later. There are two experiences, sometimes described as I got saved and then I took it seriously. Keswick has this defining feature where it creates an us and them separation. Another buzzword, power. 
The movement was big on missions and good works, but only through the power afforded by the Holy Spirit. And who helped disseminate these ideas in the United States? That's right, D.L. Moody and his lieutenants. At least some of them. They preached that Christians, sanctified people, should be holy. And a big part of being holy is being separate from the world. Here again is George Marsden. Yeah, to be apart from the world, particularly in, in behavior and in, in early fundamentalism, that was a strong emphasis, even in places that you wouldn't think of as holiness. But let's say Bob Jones University is, is, is probably the best known example of, of a classic fundamentalism that where separation from the world was one of the major signs of are you a true Christian? So you're separating not only from apostate churches, but also from worldliness and the, the vices associated with worldliness. So that's a strong emphasis pretty much across the board in fundamentalism. Whatever your view on sanctification would be, you're still going to be against smoking, drinking, dancing, guard playing, those kinds of things. Moody and his lieutenants spread this idea that we should not participate in these sort of social evils. We should be obviously different. This, of course, became an important tenet of the fundamentalist movement, being separate. Though not all future fundamentalists were into Keswick holiness. B.B. Warfield and other Calvinists thought it undercut God's sovereignty. For example, maybe you know this saying, Let go and let God. A diehard Calvinist would say that that implies that God is sitting around waiting for us to give him permission to do something, waiting for you to let go. According to them, God doesn't need our permission. Now, that's just one example of how fundamentalists don't fully agree. That would be too easy. Warfield wrote essays in the pamphlet series The Fundamentals, along with guys who preached Keswick holiness. And the Fundamentals was supposed to nail down the required doctrines of the faith. Yet, these guys weren't on the same side. Even fundamentalists disagree with each other. I wanted to point out some of the holiness movement in some of its forms so you could look for it in coming months as this discussion of fundamentalism continues. How a tiny idea can become a whole bunch of different things. Now, pair holiness was what we learned in the last two episodes. This seemingly innocuous idea was spread far and wide through conferences, schools, books, mailing lists, and the burgeoning Christian subculture, telling people that to live a holy life, you have to be different from those around you, something you can find evidence for in scripture. But that impulse would shapeshift over and over until it became a wedge between denominations, between fiefdoms, between society, and Christians. And what was seen as a virtue would become a way to signal to those around us just how virtuous we are and how backwards you are. I doubt that John Wesley's father had any idea when he pulled them from that burning house just what an impact he would have. That a child saved from fire someday would ignite a debate over the Holy Spirit and what makes us, us, and them, them. Special thanks to the many voices we heard today. George Marsden, author of Fundamentalism and American Culture, 
Chris Evans is the author of Do Everything. I'm also indebted to my brother Nick Sterren, who's a great sounding board. Thanks also to my Patreon supporters. By giving a little each month, you help me make this show. And donors gain access to bonus episodes, video chats, and special features not heard anywhere else. To help out, visit patreon.com slash trucepodcast. Thanks to all the folks who gave their voice to this episode. Carl Klemmer, Eric Nevins of the Halfway There podcast, Jerry Dugan from the Beyond the Rut podcast, and Michelle and Shay Watson of the Lipstick and Pencils podcast. Subscribe to the show so you get every new episode as it's released. And please, tell your friends. Text them right now and let them know about this crazy project. Truce is a production of Truce Media, LLC. I'm Chris Starin, and this is Truce.